Thanks, Jason. All right, good morning, everybody. It is, uh, you're all muted, so I'm sure you said good morning, but I can't hear you. So many of you are waving, so I appreciate that. Uh, I, I'm just thankful this morning. I, I, I am. I'm, I'm full of thanks and joy and peace um, and passion because of how great God is, despite uh, what we're going through and dealing with as a church, as individuals, as a nation. I just see God's faithfulness. I, I look on this screen. I see Jonathan holding uh, his beautiful family. And uh, man, just what a journey that's been uh, for them and for us as a class, just walking with them during that time and to see God just bless them uh, with two beautiful children. And praise the Lord. I, that just never gets old when I see that. And then, of course, that provokes me to think about uh, just Jonathan and I, when we began having discussions about he and Marcy coming to the Life Fellowship, and and uh, what a joy uh, he's been just to get to know him as a brother, as a friend, and work with him and appreciate him. And then Friday night, man, you know, my in my living room on our on our TV, man, there's Jeff Gray, uh, just jamming praise night, man. I mean, just glorifying God and ministering to others and. Uh, with joy in his heart and just sharing his life and and uh, you know just just full and then I see Jason who is uh, a very 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 dear man to me a dear brother a dear friend a dear co-laborer I, I go back to what has been almost three years ago now to that day in my office I was first time I met he and Rachel and their beautiful little kids and and so many of the things that we talked about in that meeting where we uh, it was a it was a, a an envisioning meeting where what could God do with them? How could God use them? And just to see how God has answered that and continues to answer it. Just watching Jason uh, grow, he's uh, he's a, a trusted friend and co-laborer, and I'm so thankful to the Lord. And so I could go on and on and on, but God has been good. We are in Colossians chapter one. Uh, we're continuing to look at the power of prayer from this powerful prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. And part of the process, for some of you, uh, have you've done this where you've taught through a book of the Bible. You know that one of the things that you do is you read through that book, uh, usually several times, to make sure you, you've got a feel for the book and, and all of that. And when I was in Shepherd School of Ministry, I was introduced to a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. Of course, the last name obviously caught my name, so I was, my interest was piqued automatically. But uh, he was a, a British pastor and author from the 1900s, early to mid-1900s. And he was known for having a mastery of whatever text that he preach from. People who would listen to him were just spellbound at what he extracted from the text and what he gleaned. And, and I'll never forget one of the things I read about him was a man approached him after the service that he had taught one night. And he says, how do you know your text so well? How do you, I mean, you're, 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 you're pointing things out that I've, I've read that verse. I've never seen that. And G. Campbell Morgan said to him, he said, you really don't want to know. And the young man was persistent and says, no, I really want to know. And here's what G. Campbell Morgan said to him. He said, before I do anything, I read through the entire book that I'm teaching through 40 to 50 times in one setting. 
and of course, uh, the young man was dejected and say, "Oh, that's." Uh, but his his mastery of the text wasn't because of his personal brilliance; it was because of his faith, love, and devotion, and passion for the book, and his diligence and his approach to study. And that's how he mastered it so well. Now, I don't say that to you to to say that um, I am. Uh, a G. Campbell Morgan, far from it. We share the same last name, and after that, there are many differences uh, to his positive and my negative. But it did, it did set a standard for me. It did set the bar. It did let me know what's involved in preaching, the discipline, the time, the effort, the work that it takes. And so I, say, I share this with you to say that when you're reading through the book of Colossians, this is, this is you, you begin to see just how rich and how full this book is. Because the book of Colossians is short in length, but very concentrated in content. And that's what you get when you're, before you start doing anything, before you start outlining and looking at how you're going to approach the book from a teaching perspective, you're just blown away at, well, yeah, I can read through it many, many, many times, but God, every word, every page is just saturated with goodness. What do I do, right? Uh, in many respects, it's like the minor prophets of the Old Testament. They're short in length, but not content and depth, right? I mean, they are just full of glory and goodness. And so Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae in chapter 1, it makes that point. It is a powerful prayer that shows us the power of prayer. It's powerful, it's rich, it's deep, it's full. And it doesn't allow us to just gloss over and just move on. This is why we're spending the type of time that we're spending on this prayer because there's just so much to look at and we can't dismiss any of it. And so it should become the prayer. It should become the desire of our hearts for our own lives and for those who are in and around our lives as believers. If you're not already, I would challenge you to be meditating and praying over this prayer every day. Why wouldn't you? It's that awesome. It's that amazing. If you are married, why aren't you praying this if, you, if you're not? Why aren't you praying this for your spouse every day? I would challenge you to do that as long as we're here. Would you just, would you just choose right now and say, you know what? I'm going to pray for my husband. I'm going to pray for my wife every day. I'm going to bring them before the throne of grace with this wonderful prayer that God gave us through the apostles. Apostle Paul, uh, if you're single, you pray this for yourself. You pray this for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are a parent, be praying this for your children. Be praying this every day. And then for Life Fellowship, man, let's just be trusting God for one another with this. Be praying for me. I've been praying this for you. I am provoked to excitement to just imagine God answering this and this being these things being a reality in your life and in mine. But we continue in this morning, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Paul said, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10 that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, 
I am no journalist by profession. Many of you have figured that out already. But I do know enough about grammar uh, to recognize punctuation marks and, and what they typically mean. That said, verse 9, as we see, it ends in a semicolon, not a period. And so what that means is, is Paul was looking to join two thoughts that can stand alone on their own, but they are connected to a primary or singular thought, which in this case was his prayer. In other words, what is said in verse 9 is connected to what is said in verse 10, and so on and so on. If it weren't, verse 9 would have ended with a period. It did not. Now, if only my English teacher could hear me today from high school, uh, she would sleep really good tonight to know that of all the people in the world, I had no idea that Kenny Morgan paid attention. I did, ma'am. So she should be proud. It was not in vain. Now, in verse 10, we see one, another one of Paul's key words in this prayer, walk. That you might walk worthy of the Lord. Uh, the focus and desire of Paul's prayer here was that he wanted to see the believers at Colossae walk worthy or walk appropriately before the Lord. In other words, their walk needed to be consistent with who they were of. They were of the Lord. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are of him also. Therefore, we should walk in accordance to that. Now, we must state the obvious here because, once again, everything is connected. To walk worthy of the Lord... If that's going to happen in the life of any believer to walk worthy of the Lord, that means that we have to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You cannot walk worthy of the Lord if you are not. Whenever a believer is not walking worthy of the Lord, this is why. It is because they're not filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding which compromises their walk before the Lord. Because, this is very, very important, how we walk is the manifestation of what we are under the influence of. That is the key. How we walk is the manifestation of what we are under the influence of. That's your blank, influence. Many of you are familiar with this. When a police officer pulls over someone that he or she suspects is driving under the influence of alcohol, they give them what we know as a field sobriety test, right? So they have them exit their vehicle, and one of the key aspects of that test is to have that driver take nine steps, right? Walking. They have them take nine steps to see if they can walk in a way that demonstrates that they are or are not under the influence of alcohol. Now, as basic as that sounds, because you and I are sober right now, you and I can take nine steps and we can do that in a very coordinated, orderly way and not stumble or anything like that. But when you are under the influence of alcohol, it's not that easy. Matter of fact, you'll fail that test miserably. Now, pay very close attention because here's where we're going with this. Consider Galatians 5, 19 and on. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. They're evident. Carnality is visible. It's illuminated. When you are under the influence of the flesh, you cannot miss it. 
which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do, this is how they live, such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. See, when you are under the influence of the flesh, you will fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you will not deal properly with others. Lust will be unbridled in your life. Satan's will, not God's, will be done in your life. You will war with your spouse. You will war with other believers because you are under the influence of the flesh. This means you're not walking worthy of the Lord because, listen, the evidence of what we are under the influence of is found in how we deal with others and how we handle temptation. That is always the case. What you are under the influence of is always going to show up in how you deal with others and how you handle temptation. Every single time. The Apostle Paul made a statement to the church at Thessalonica in his first epistle that for many years now I have found to be a very captivating thought. Listen to it. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12 and 13 he said this, And we beseech you, brethren... To know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now here's the statement. And be at peace among yourselves. And be at peace among yourselves. Now, very basic here. The opposite of peace is war. Listen. Depending on what you are under the influence of determines whether or not you're going to be at peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit, or you're going to be at war with others, particularly brothers and sisters. It all depends on what you are under the influence of, because when you are under the influence of the flesh, you can only do one thing with brethren, war. You will war with them. You will always be in a battle with a brother or a sister about something. Because that is, that is what carnality produces. It's what it does. And I've spoken to and with enough of you to know that you all, we all desire. We all desire relationships in our homes. Relationships in the body of Christ in the local church. We all desire for those relationships to be glorifying to God and mutually edifying. We all desire that. And listen, we can have that if we walk in the Spirit of God. That is the key. It doesn't matter how different we are in gender. It doesn't matter how different we are in education or any of that. What it comes down to is if we're walking in the spirit, we will be at peace, not war. This is true in marriage. It's true in relationships. It always comes down to what we are under the influence of. 
If it's the flesh, we're going to war. If it's the spirit, we're going to have peace. To the churches of Galatia, Paul said this in Galatians 5.16. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Listen, in my own life, <laughs> and having talked to enough people, I understand the flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. It, it kills me to know that I have been saved for going on 26 years and my flesh has not improved at all. <laughs> it is still weak. It is selfish. It is sinful. It is dark. It is lustful. It is arrogant. It is prideful. That's what's in me. I mean, that's me. And, and, it, and it's that way every single day I wake up in this flesh. It just does not want to cooperate with God. And it fights and it wars and it kicks and it throws tantrums. I mean, that's my flesh and that's yours. My flesh always wants what it wants and it never wants what God wants. And temptation is daily. It's every day. It doesn't stop. But here's what I've learned. Temptation is no match for a spirit-filled believer. Temptation is no match for a spirit-filled believer. That's the key. How I deal with temptation, whether I give in to it, whether I give over to it, it comes down to one single thing. Am I or am I not walking in the Spirit of God? It is that simple. It doesn't matter if my father was this way and he struggled with that and he never got over this. It doesn't matter that I have a propensity or I have a bent for this or that. All of those things are relevant. It always comes down to, am I under the influence of the spirit of God? If I am, I will please God in that moment every time. If I'm not, I will not. In the flesh, we all have the propensity to give in to the lusts of the flesh, whatever they may be. That's me and that's you. And when we do, we're not walking worthy of the Lord. But one of the things that we read and we know, that happens when we're under the influence of the Spirit. One of the traits that will be exhibited in our lives is the trait of temperance. It absolutely is. Now, this is one of many places where you will see where your modern Bible versions let you down and strip you from something that is very precious because when you look at this word temperance, uh, the meaning, as you see, throughout the King James Bible, it has a built-in dictionary. So the word is defined for you. The root of this word temperance is the word temper. Okay? Which means this, and I gave you this in, in the PowerPoint. Temper is to mix so that one part qualifies the other, bring to a moderate state. Now, think about that. Right? Because when you're tempted in your flesh and, 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 and you've got this urge, you've got this burning desire to, to think, say, or do something that is contrary to the word of God, that can be so intense that it seems impossible to endure. 
There's no way that I can't say yes to this. There's no way I can't give over to this. There's no way I can't give in. Listen, there's no way I can temper these flames. But here's what God does when we're under the influence of the Spirit. God mixes His Spirit that is in us with our willful submission to Him to temper the flesh. That's temperance. (laughs) That's what God does. And this is how we endure the raging flames of temptation. This is also why every believer can say no to sin when tempted and walk worthy of the Lord. Now, as Paul faithfully did in all of his writings, he tells us why this is important. Why is it that we should walk worthy of the Lord? It's in the next statement in verse 10. Unto all pleasing. Unto all pleasing. That's why. To please the Lord. Now, what you should know is that there is, there is a real battle being waged between the Lord Jesus Christ and some of his people. At the center of it is this very issue. Unto all pleasing. That's the battle. Between the Lord and some of his people. What is their life all about? Unto all pleasing to him. Or unto all pleasing to them. That's the battle. That is the battle that is being waged between the Lord and some of his people. What matters most? Is it that you're pleased or that I'm pleased, Lord? This is the battle for some. Here's what I know with certainty. If you are Gnostic in spirit, you are entrenched in this battle. Because Gnostics are obsessed with what they think. Gnostics are not preoccupied with pleasing the Lord. They are preoccupied with being pleased. And please be not be not mistaken. You can know the Bible and still possess a Gnostic spirit. Many do. And here's what continues to astound me about believers who are Gnostic in spirit. In all of their knowledge, in all of their gleaning, in all of their brilliance, they can never seem to glean grace. They they can never seem to glean mercy. They can never seem to glean love and forbearance and long-suffering. They, in all their gleanings, they just never seem to even stumble across such things. It's always this higher knowledge that nobody knows except them. And I guess maybe things like mercy and grace and love and forbearance and long-suffering, I guess those things are just too kindergarten for them. What's tragic about that is those traits are consistent with who God is. I guess for their doctrinal intelligence, it's just not sophisticated enough. Therefore, they replace those things with pride and arrogance and constant judgment of others. And as much as I love this church, and believe me, I do, I love Midtown. I love my pastor. I love that I'm here. I love that I get to be here. I'm all over what God is doing here. Though not endorsed by leadership, we do have, in some cases at Midtown, 
We have Gnostics. We have some who possess this spirit. As Jason said earlier, they're the smartest in the room, and what they think is always right. It's superior. And if they get your ear, they will subtly plant those seeds and sow discord and let you know how everybody who's leading you has no clue what they're doing. But they've got the answers. Listen to them. Although God hasn't appointed them to directly oversee this church and give account for this church, they got it all figured out. I was speaking to a dear brother this week who was a senior pastor in another state, and he said the same thing. Yeah, I've got some Gnostics here. No matter what I do, I'm wrong. We were 100% wrong to stop meeting. We're 100% wrong to continue meeting or resume meeting. Give me a break. And both have scriptures to prove their point. Let me tell you something. Something that helps me to properly stay under Sam is that I do not have a zeal for Sam to hear me. I don't. I am not zealous for Sam to hear what I think. You know what I'm zealous for Sam to hear? I am zealous for Sam to hear from God. So you know what I do? I pray for him like this, like Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. Because here's where Paul is going with this. Look down in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And listen, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Now, I made space in your notes. Obviously, we're going to get to this. We're going to spend a lot of time in what I just read. But I made space in your notes because I want you to write this, this statement down. And it's so critical to me that I want you to write it out word for word. And I'm sorry, but I think it'll be worth it. Here's the statement. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is huge, guys. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will never be first in anything. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will never be first in anything. Nor will it ever be about me. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... I will never be first in anything, nor will it ever be about me. If we got that, if we got that in marriage, if we got that in our relationships in the local church, oh my goodness. The stress, the headaches, the heartaches, the disappointments would vanish overnight. We had a wonderful time in our Southland Bible study Thursday night. Uh, that's the Bible study that meets out of life. And, and we were, hey, I, got, I see Martha hold it, giving us a little love. Absolutely. Uh, our time was, was centered on John chapter 8. And oh my goodness, I think we could meet again for the rest of the year and just hang out in John 8, man. It's awesome. 
And by the way, let me just tell you, if you are in one of our small group Bible studies, let me just tell you what makes for a great small group gathering, okay? Uh, It's not coming as a Gnostic or coming to impress others with our Gnosticism. It is coming having walked with God and what you've read, right? Whatever we have agreed to read and study, when you show up, You've been walking with God in John chapter 8. You've been meditating on John chapter 8. You've been praying to God over John chapter 8. And so when you show up, you're trusting that what God has, what you have gleaned in that time with God and his word, you're coming with an open heart to say, man, let me just tell you, like, oh man, I, I read this and man, I read, and let me tell you why I struggle because it, and it's not that I'm brilliant or anything, but there's so much I want to talk about. Like, man, like in terms of, of, of how it, it touched me as a husband or a father or a pastor or whatever, I just, it's like, man, this is, this is awesome. Like I, and I, I have to be, cause Rich leads our group and of course he's gracious and he allows me to talk too much, but, but, but I, I just like, I don't know how you can come to a small group Bible study and not be excited over over what you read and what you learn. And man, you just you're just like a kid, right? An amusement park. You just want everybody to get on this ride and enjoy it. It's awesome, right? Man, and then so you come and you know what you want to do? You you want to share that in hopes that you will provoke your brothers and sisters to walk worthy of the Lord. That's a great small group Bible study. And one of the verses that we spent time on, Martha raised her hands, but it, Martha brought it up. It was John eight twenty nine. It's in your notes. And he, Jesus said, that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always. For I do always. Those things that please him. <laughs> If you don't have a life verse, the Holy Spirit just gave it to you. (laughs) Are you kidding me? For I do always those things that please him. Being a savior and a Lord of spotless character and integrity. The Lord Jesus Christ never did anything or never called his disciples or us to do anything that he himself did not do. We ought to walk worthy of him unto all pleasing because that's exactly what he did before the father at his first coming. He walked worthy unto all pleasing. He always, listen, not most of the time. He always did those things that please the father. Now what follows next ought not to surprise us in verse 10 of Colossians chapter one, being fruitful in every good work. Again, we go back to Jesus here, the author and finisher of our faith, because he always did those things that please the father. Now listen, God is glorified when disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ bear much fruit. It's exactly what Jesus did. We're going to get to that. Now that was worded very intentionally. Notice I did not say God is glorified when believers. No, no. God is glorified when disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ bear much fruit. Because that is the context of John chapter 15. 
The context of John 15 is discipleship. Study it, you'll see it. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is outstanding. Praise God. Okay? And while heaven is automatic for you, what you need to understand, not everything else is automatic for you. Because here's what's not automatic for you if you are a believer but not a disciple. What's not automatic for you is pleasing and glorifying God. (laughs) You might be a believer, but if you're not a disciple... I promise you, you are not pleasing and glorifying God. And I'll prove it here in just a minute. Because, see, it's only disciples indeed who will do that. See, while every true disciple is a saved person, not every saved person is a true disciple. That's the point. So guess what? If you are saved, but not coming after Christ as a true disciple, here's what that means. What that means is, is you are not, nor can you be fruitful in every good work. That is something that disciples indeed do. Which means if you're not being fruitful in every good work, you are not walking worthy unto the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the ultimate key to being fruitful in every good work. And listen, John 15 is very rich about this, but the ultimate key to bearing much fruit, the ultimate key to being fruitful in every good work is actually not found in John 15. Hang with me. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. You have lost your mind. I'm going to check out this Zoom. You're a heretic. Give me a couple minutes. The ultimate key is found in something that Jesus said before we get to John 15. And without that, what Jesus says in John 15 about abiding and bearing fruit and bearing more fruit and much fruit Cannot and will not happen. Here it is. John 12, 24. Listen, Jesus said this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it die, here it is. It bringeth forth much fruit. Now, contextually speaking, Jesus himself was the corn of wheat. Now, the reason that I had you write that statement down earlier that your hand is probably still aching from (laughs) was to drive us to John 12, 24. Listen very, very carefully now. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. So the believer who has yet to figure out that they are not first... And that it will never be about them. You know what? They are abiding alone. See, when you abide alone, you cannot and you will not bear much fruit. You abide alone. Which means it's all about who? It's all about you. It's all about you being first. It's all about your opinions. It's all about your, you fill in your blank. You're abiding alone, which means this person, this believer, they're not being fruitful in every good work. 
And this brings us to the critical point. Here we go. The fruit of a self-centered life is barrenness. (laughs) The fruit of a self-centered life is barrenness. When you abide alone, when it's all about you, you do not produce fruit. You don't bear fruit to the glory of God. And listen, I continue to learn and I continue to observe that many people, many people, believers even, have yet to figure out they are not worth obsessing over. (laughs) They've yet to figure this out. They've yet to figure out that they are not worth obsessing over. They're not worth focusing on them all the time. They're not worth abiding alone. And as long as they allow Satan to hold them hostage, we'll get to this in Colossians chapter 2, by constantly thinking about themselves, they'll never be fruitful in every good work to the glory of Christ. But it's perfectly said by the Lord Jesus Christ, but if it die... It bringeth forth much fruit. John 12, 24. Again, God is glorified when disciples of Christ bring forth much fruit. And by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, listen, brought forth much fruit. And he continues to bring forth much fruit to the glory of the Father. Which brings us to the ultimate key to being fruitful in every good work. Here it is. The key to being fruitful in every good work is simply to die to self. See, unless you die to self, you'll never abide like Christ tells you to in John 15. Why should you? Why would you? Why would you abide in Jesus Christ if you are abiding alone? So that's why I say, unless you get John 12, 24 down, you will not get John 15 down. If you're not, uh, if you don't die to self, <laughs> if you don't fall, if you don't lawyer, you don't humble yourself, you don't submit to him completely, you will never do what he says in John 15. You can't. It's impossible. You know, one of the key themes of every funeral I've either done or attended. One of the key themes in that is finality. Finality. Physical life as we knew it for this individual is over. It's done. And this is where we land the plane on what I trust will be a very sobering point for us today. And this is very, very important. Listen. The most important funeral that you will ever attend as a believer needs to be your own. Needs to be your own. The most important funeral that every believer needs to attend is their own. That's the most important funeral you will ever attend. Galatians 2.20 Paul said, I am crucified undead with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the obituary for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are dead. You're crucified. Kenneth Preston Morgan died 2,000 years ago with Christ at Calvary. He was buried with Christ and he rose again with Christ on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the life that he now lives is not his. It's Christ that lives in him. That is my obituary and it is yours as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the reason that we have issues that we have in our walk and the reason that we have issues in the church is because there are too many believers who have yet to attend their funeral. You're dead. And the life that you live is not yours. It's his living in and through you. Father, I do pray that what we have learned or gleaned from you in this portion of Colossians chapter 1 will not return void. In Jesus' name, amen.